Today's reading is from Psalms, chapter 115, verses 1 through 9. We'll be reading from the New International Version. Please follow along as the text is presented on the screens above. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Why did the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak, eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear, noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel, feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you is trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Good morning, and I want to invite uh, anybody to come on over to Encore after this uh, service, and especially if you're new, or if you want to talk about some of these uh, things that we've been getting into each week. And um, thank you for those of you who have asked questions, sent me emails, and um, it's an uh, interesting topic. Yeah, it affects all of us. So uh, I want to... Today we're going to talk about idols, and my hunch is that we all have one, or more. So I'm going with that assumption. And um, an idol is something, and this is what somebody has said, something that demands more and more, gives less and less, and eventually asks for everything and gives absolutely nothing. So you can see how that would tie in maybe to an addiction. And I want to use a, a... an example of somebody that you all know. Many of you have, actually you have an idol in your pocket or in your purse. Oh, I left mine downstairs. Why do I feel inadequate, right? And, but the, 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 the iPhone w- would not maybe be there without Steve Jobs. And so I wanted to say something about him. I read his biography a few years ago, Walter Isaacson. It's kind of a definitive biography on his life. And um, interestingly enough, he doesn't, he doesn't seem to struggle with a technology addiction, and that's a real thing, and we'll talk more about that. But he, all of his life, struggled with a food addiction or an eating disorder, and he went to these extremes of, of different diets at different times in his life. And he, as you know, he was a perfectionist and a control freak at the same time. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But um, it was in that area where he lived out the, his, you could say food was an idol. In, and it created all kinds of problems for people around him. He would storm out of restaurants. Uh, he stormed out of a lot of places, actually, but for all kinds of reasons. But he would storm out of restaurants. He would create all kinds of relational uh, stuff in his wake. But it, it, a lot of times it had to do with food. And um, then in 2003, when he uh, found out that he had pancreatic cancer, um, and that's not a good thing, but he had a, it turns out he had a rare form that was actually curable through surgery. That was the, at least the statistics would say so. But he decided, being a control freak and a perfectionist, thinking that he could control the situation, to not have surgery against the advice of everybody in his life. And uh, the rest of the story is that he eventually died in 2010. He eventually did have to have surgery, but if he'd had it right away, he 
very well might be alive today. And you could, this is Isaacson's argument that he did not have a, um, it wasn't really pancreatic cancer that killed him as much as his food idol. Now that's a, so you get that? I mean, this is a big deal. And it comes in all, all shapes and sizes. And um, Andy Crouch, another uh, writer in this, in this uh, has said that, that idols uh, always make two promises. And an idol is something that wants you to worship it or sacrifice for it. Uh, we'll get in a little bit more clear on our definition today. But uh, the two, prom- or two uh, promises are, and you'll hear, you'll hear echoes of where we were in the Garden of Eden, you will surely not die. That's the first promise. If you worship and sacrifice for me, you will surely not die. And the second one is, you will be like God. And you might say, promises, promises, promises. And how did that work out for Steve Jobs? And how's it going to work out for us? So uh, there's the, uh, our intro into idolatry. The series so far, we focus more on the word sin in the Bible. We remember that the word addiction is not found in the Bible. And so we're trying to find some parallels and some connections that would be helpful for us to understand more deeply what this thing is that we call addiction. And last week we looked at enslaved, how it enslaves us, but whether we call it a sin or an addiction, slavery is part of it. And people want to go back to Egypt and to that place of slavery. What happens to the human will as it gets shrunk down? So today we're going to look at, actually that did not get edited, <laughs> that should be idolatry and addiction, uh, idolatry on the left, and this Venn diagram that overlaps between these two words, uh, idolatry and addiction. And um, we're going to uh, see how this huge word uh, is part of our lives today. It's in the Bible and it's in our lives, and we're going to ask these three questions. What is it? What does it do? And what we do? What can we do? All right, let's get into what is idolatry with the Bible. How's that? You're in church, you should expect that. We're going to start with the Bible. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you big picture stuff. And the, the first part is to know this, that in, in ancient Middle Eastern cultures, we know this from the Bible, but also from sources outside the Bible, that every culture, every culture in that time period that the Old Testament was being written, uh, we'll, we'll get into a little bit more in a sec, but ancient uh, Middle Eastern culture was full of idols. And so when Israel came out of Egypt, they were, Egypt was a land of idolatry. They worshiped, uh, amongst other things, they worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars. And uh, there were all kinds of idols uh, in the nation. There was no other nation in the world that did not have idols or was not supposed to have idols because of what their God is, what makes Israel unique. And so um, the Ten Commandments begin with the first two commandments are specifically against idolatry. You shall have no other gods besides me, says the Lord Yahweh, and you shall make no idols. So don't, and when you're talking there about specifically idols that are made out of stone and wood and things that they would make, um, we'll, we'll talk more about how that gets uh, modified as time goes on. And then, so you have the law that says no idols, and then you have the prophets that come along. And what a prophet is in Israel's history is somebody who says, look, Israel, you're not paying attention to the law. Go back to see what God says and live in it, or you will suffer consequences. 
And so the prophets came along and they identify three, these are the three huge sins of Israel's existence in the Old Testament. The first one is idolatry. And by far the most, the, the highest number of um, marks against Israel was because of idolatry. They were, put, they were making idols. They were putting other gods before their God. So that's the first one. The second one is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, uh, the, the nations were actually combining their, uh, their worship services, the other nations around Israel, with sexuality. And you had fertility rights. You had prostitutes in the, the sanctuaries of that day. And so sexual immorality was something that Israel was not supposed to uh, participate in. And you could say it's connected to idolatry. And the third one is the treatment of the poor, the oppressed, the immigrants. The immigrants, folks. Is that a relevant word? The way you treat immigrants is the way you treat me, says God. And the prophets were huge on that. And so uh, you, have, you can see that there's maybe economic idolatry there. We want what we have, and we don't care about what other people have. That's another form of idolatry. So idolatry is a huge problem in the Old Testament, and eventually it is the reason, the reason that Israel is sent by God into exile, into Babylon. And they had to go there for 70 years. God disciplined, he loved Israel enough to discipline them, and sure enough, at the end of 70 years, they had no more idolatry. This is is the way it reads. At least... It seems they have no more idolatry. But something happens, and you can see it in the voice of the prophets. During, the ex- during that time in Israel's history, and particularly in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and they start to talk about not these idols out here made of wood and stone that you can see and feel and touch, but idols of the heart. Oh, the field uh, just expanded like exponentially what a potential idol could be. Do you see how this might relate to us today? when we're talking about idols of the heart. And when Jesus comes along, so, you know, 500 years later or whatever, after this exile thing, when Jesus comes along, he talked about one idol in particular called mammon, and he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Idols of the heart. Things that draw us to... uh, them, and there's sort of this gravitational pull. And so here's a, here's a definition that, um, this is from Tim Keller and his book, Counterfeit Gods, and um, it's anything, an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, from which you seek to get something that only God can give. There's many other definitions, but that one works pretty good. By the way, if there's, I'm going to give you a lot of quotes today, and so if you didn't get it all written down or whatever, uh, come talk to me. Later I'll give you what you're looking for. Um, so what is idolatry today? This is going to get... Let's, let's, I want, you to get, want us to get into this. Um, it, it, they're, hard to, they're hard to see because they're not external. And uh, one of the... Uh, I think great resources that I came across for this series is a book called The Recovering by Lemison, who is a recovering alcoholic. And the thing, I'll, I'll say it again, people in rehab are some of the, just the best sources for understanding who we are as human beings because they, they see it more clearly. And Leslie, um, she's a writer, and this is what she says, very insightful. Make something of yourself. That's the beginning thing here. This is one of the secular articles of faith in the American gospel of productivity. Is it not? 
I mean, I've heard that my whole life. Yeah, make something of yourself. Uh, So I spent years making as much as I could, as well as I could. But at the end of the day, more specifically, at the end of each day, I was exhausted by all that making and wanted the chatter of these exhortations quieted. So gin, so fine. And we might ask in this room, so what? What is it for you? Because, and here's the, real, here's the real question. Where's the idol on that screen? Is it in the gin or the wine, or is it in that first statement? Make something of yourself. Do you see how idols work? And an addiction, and this is, you're going to see this overlap between these two words, but typically in addiction we think of something, but you have to go upstream from whatever that thing is to see where the idol really is. The idol of the heart. It's what you love. It's what you give, you build your life around, and then the addiction takes it from there. Well, I think she's so insightful. Uh, in this sense, I, the, uh, and the, the, the alcohol is just a, an icon of the idol. John Cheever, let's see here, if I can get this up here. This is from John Cheever. Uh, the main emotion of the average adult American who has had all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is, what do you think? What do you think? Give me a word. Well, this, and he, you know, he's, he's a cultural, by the way, he too struggled with alcohol. I'll give you that warning. Disappointment. The main emotion of the average adult American who has had all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is disappointment. Do you know that Americans use 95% of the narcotics in the world? Oh, aren't we a happy nation? <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, uh, by the way, it's, there's no S on the end of John Cheever's name there, Cheever. Yeah, and so from a biblical source, we might go to Ecclesiastes. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, but everything was meaningless. In the, in the book uh, Addiction Nation, uh, it, I, the gist of it is, at least in part, is that the war on drugs is a joke. It's an absolute joke. It's never going to get us anywhere. In fact, it's taken us back into places that we should never have gone. The unintended, consequence, unintended consequences of that war and the logic that he uses to make that argument, and this is a Christian, by the way, who's making this argument, is that we have all kinds of issues in America, but, but drugs are, you got to go upstream. Why are people taking jug, drugs? Because they've been, they've been sold the American dream. Well, what's the American dream? <laughs> have more of this, have more of that, be happy, whatever, and it doesn't work. Make yourself, make success. That's where the war should be. We don't have an answer to what is meaningful in life. And if you don't have an answer to that question, of course you're going to use drugs. And having a war on drugs isn't going to do anything for you. Well, you see where the idols come from? I want, I want to get into the next part of this. and I, uh, I, I feel like when I'm talking about idolatry, I want to just say this off the record, that the prophets in the Bible are so negative towards idolatry. And I feel like, I don't want to beat anybody up. I just want us to see clearly what really is. Defining truth is really the beginning for healing, right? But don't take this, I mean, we're all in this, I'm trying to make that case, we're all in this together, 
and we all suffer from it. And I will next week go more into idolatry in my own life. And um, yeah. So, no, I hope, I, I really don't want anybody to feel beat up this morning. All right, last week, we're going to go to what, what does it do now? What do idols do to us? And I want to begin by saying what idols do to us, it began in the garden. Let's go back there. We were there the last two weeks. The Garden of Eden was that place that was warm, safe, and secure. It was intimacy with God, intimacy with people. There was a, there was a peace and a hum and a harmony to the world. It was Wonderful. Okay, every light was green. No, no rainstorms like we just had. No water in your crawl space like I've got. You know, it's it was a wonderful place. And then there was this rebellion that you and I are part of, and we were banished from that garden. No, no longer to come back. And the argument that Scott Peck makes is we're we're uh, pushed out into the desert having to walk by faith through this desert that is hard and we get anxious as we walk through the desert and the addict is somebody who wants to go back, right? We talked about that. They want to get back in and they want to use a substance to help them get back in. Well, let's, let's take that uh, metaphor a little bit further differently and say, look at, as you walk through the desert, as we are walking through this desert where the, the certainties are not so certain and where we have to walk by faith, trusting that there will be something good on the other side, and in the Christian worldview, it's eternal life with God, a restoration. And as we walk through this journey that's so hard, we get anxious. And there's idols that call out to us, left and right. And they're going to be different. We're going to respond to them differently, whoever we are. These are the anxious voices we, we talked about last week. As we walk through the desert, we are self-conscious and we think, everyone is looking at me. They're, they're, by the way, this is a sampling. I am not enough. I do not have what it takes to tolerate what I feel. And here's the idol, fill in the blank one. If only I had, if only I had, and it's something other than God, something that, I mean, of course you're going to have things that you, you need in life, but something that you put above God. If only I had that. And here's one, for those of you who are codependent, if only I could make everybody else in my life happy. That would be enough. That's your idol. Well, your idol is somewhere upstream from that. It has to do with your need for security from someplace other than God. And you, This is how it works. If only I could get someone to love me in a romantic way. That becomes your idol. The list is endless, folks. This is why we can say what, what, what John Calvin said is the human heart is an idol factory. Not I-D-L-E, that would not be true. I-D-O-L. We create idols in here to answer that question. All of us, human beings, including John Calvin. So, uh, with that, what does it do to us? And this is where we get into our text this morning. What it does to us, and I don't know if you heard it, but I'll read these verses again for you. I'm going to read the verses 5 through 7. They, that is the idols, have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound from their throats. And then it says that those who make them and those who trust in them will be like them. That's, that's a strong 
So if you are uh, somebody who has an idol, you become your... Now these, these are uh, senses, right? The, the seeing and the hearing and the taste. Uh, I don't know if taste is mentioned, but smelling and uh, touching, walking. And these are all, uh, they're physical things, but they all have sort of spiritual dimensions to them. So hearing and seeing God is huge in the Old Testament and uh, being able to walk with God. And, and so there, there, it's not just the physical here we're talking about. There's spiritual aspects to this. And we become dehumanized as we give in to our idols. Now, I'm going to use a couple of addictions here to illustrate. And these, um, so the difference between an idol and addiction, it's a blurred line. That's what I'm trying to say. But these are typically recognized as addictions. How about uh, pornography? A porn addict, why do they get into pornography. Well, there's all kinds of, but one of the reasons is because it promises uh, something, uh, you know, the whole relationship thing can get pretty complicated, and so you can have sex without relationship. And you hear that's, that's one of the number one reasons for, at least for men, to get involved with pornography, and pornography is not just a men thing, by the way. But um, at any rate, and that somehow this, there's a promise there that that this, it, it will also kind of wake something up in you, something that's been dormant, something that's more alive, and you go there, and the promise is it would enliven your sexuality. That's another part of it. But the research shows, just go to research, and uh, not that that's always the final word, but research shows that what pornography, what it eventually does is it diminishes your capacity to have sex in a healthy and normal way with the person that God has put in your life, meaning your spouse. So it starts here with a promise and ends here with a thud. Do you see how an, an idol functions? That's what I'm trying to get at here. Let's go to social media. There's addictions to social media. Some of you may be partaking of those right now. I don't know. Um, but social media is... Uh, what does it promise? Well, the, the original promise was that it's going to allow us to be more connected as human beings. A wonderful thing, right? That's a good promise. But what does the research say, say on it? That we are more anxious, that those who use it, especially this is heavily, and uh, this is the research this was done on, on mostly teens, but I think it's true for all. Uh, we're more anxious, less empathetic, and less capable of having a meaningful face-to-face conversation with another human being. So that's, you know, you start here and you end here with a thud. And you can go on, but that's what, that's what an idol does. It promises one thing and you're left uh, with something else. So let's, uh, Brene Brown, anybody know that name? Do you know that Brene Brown is a recovering alcoholic? Uh, 25 years or so, and she has a voice here, I think, that really needs to be heard. We cannot selectively numb emotions. When we numb the painful emotions, we also numb the positive emotions. And so, in other words, you're being diminished. You can enter into something that becomes an addiction or is an idol that starts here and ends here. And in the process, you lose really important stuff that's part of who you are as a human being, the ability to have joy, to take pleasure in little things in life. And I'm going to go back to Leslie Jameson here. Uh, 
we talked last week about willpower and how an, how an addiction or, or an idol can diminish our willpower. But listen to this. This is, this is extremely insightful. The willpower, uh, this willpower was a fine-tuned machine, fierce and humming, and it had done plenty of things. Listen to, I mean, she's an amazing person. I've, she, yeah, she, it got me straight A's. It got my uh, papers written. got me through cross-country training runs. And she had to wake up, by the way, she had a job, as a, even as a, uh, an alcoholic, she was able to wake up at four in the morning and work in a bakery, uh, and drag herself out of bed every day. But when I applied it to drinking, this willpower, the only thing I felt was that I was turning my life into a small, joyless, clenched fist. This is what, this is what an idol does to us, or an addiction does to us. It dehumanizes us. God wants us to have joy. He wants us to take pleasure in the things that he's made. He wants us to enjoy sexuality in the right way. He wants us to have fun. He wants us to eat food. He wants us to love colors and art and all that stuff. And we lose the ability to do that as we are dehumanized. So verse 8, this effect on us, those who... Those who make them will become like them. Those who trust in them will be like them. So the principle here is you become what you look at. You are what you worship. How about you are what you eat? Our, our niece, this is, this is the best example I can think of. Our niece, when she was three years old, but her parents had this great idea. My, my brother and sister-in-law had this great idea. And it had to do with food. But they gave her uh, an enormous amount of carrot juice to drink uh, on a, for a while anyway. And guess what color she turned? <laughs> yeah. Put a black hat on her and call it thank you, Halloween, I guess. It was, yeah, it was, um, uh, but that's the principle. If that picture helps you, you become what you look at. You, you are what you love. Many ways to say it. And, and the Bible says in two places that worthless idols make those who trust in them worth less. Worthless idols make those who trust in them worth less. They devalue you as a human being. You, you know, and the other thing with idols, and this is, you'll find this in, in the scriptures too, is that they are often called worthless or dead because they're, they're just pieces of wood. And how silly it is to see the Israelites dancing around a golden calf. It's just gold. It has no power in and of itself, although there are places where the demons tend to get in there. But for the most part, they're just dead. And as you worship these dead things, you become what? More dead or less alive. How's that? That's what idols do to us. All right. So how do we, uh, let's see, I'll close here. I'm just going to use the logic of you are what you worship and take that into something that might help us. Um, Okay, as human beings, we are created in the image of God, right? And let's go back to the garden. We were perfectly in God's image in the garden, meaning we were able to perfectly relate, to love perfectly, to receive love perfectly, um, that's the idea. When we rebelled against God, and that's the royal we, I mean, it's, we're all in there. When we rebelled against God, we were 
banished from the garden and we're walking across this desert and we are no longer able to image God perfectly, but we are still created in God's image. It's an act of faith to say, I am created in God's image. Just look at me, you know? Build your self-esteem up a little bit. Just look at me. I am created in God's image. And no matter what label you wear that people have given you in life, nothing can take away from that. But the truth is that it's been tarnished, that image, in us. And a wonderful thing, probably the best thing I could ever say about somebody, and I'll say it about my wife, is that there are times when, when I see her, I say, huh, that is what God is like. Not all the time. <laughs> yeah. By the way, Valentine's Day is Friday. No, but I, I really believe, I mean, I mean that. I'm not just um, being, I'm not flattering. She really uh, is godly. That's the word, right? Godly. She's like God. And uh, sometimes more than others, but that's the way it is when you're a human being walking across the desert. Yeah, and, and so the ultimate human, let's go there, the ultimate human, who is more human than anybody else? Yeah, Jesus. It gets underreported, but that's what the Bible says, is that he is, he is more human than anyone else, but without the sin part, Right? So in other words, he perfectly images God in the sense. He's the second Adam. That's another phrase that the Bible uses. Perfectly images God. He loves perfectly. He receives love perfectly. It's all there with Jesus. And so when you look at Jesus, you can say, ah, so that's what God looks like. The, the book of Hebrews says that he is the visible image of the invisible God. Yeah. Fully human, without the sin. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So here's the logic. You are what you worship. If you worship him, and if, I were, if we were serving communion today, I would say if you eat of him, and that would be our uh, way of communicating that. But if you worship him, you become more like what you worship. You become more godly. You become more like Jesus Christ. And the uh, writer uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are being, now this is, take this on faith, we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. One degree to another, or if I can just put it this way, inch by inch. And what a, what a wonderful thing, what a wonderful hope. For those of us wondering if there's any hope for us to have that thought in our minds that as we worship Jesus, we are becoming more like him, and as we become more like him, we are being transformed into his image, inch by inch, day by day. So what we're going to do right now is worship the Lord Jesus Christ, praying for that effect upon our lives, which he has promised. And when he promises something, it's not like an idol. He will do it if we let him. So what I'd like to do right now is, is pray and, and then we're going to be led in the worship of our Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving Lord Jesus Christ, the one who shows us what God is really like 
We want to use our imaginations right now that you have given us and just focus as much as we can on you putting all those other idols or all those other distractions aside, things that are calling out to us. You are the one who has overcome all and you are glorious and you make all other idols look worthless. So may we glorify you, may we proclaim how worthy you are. And Lord, this is hard for us um, in various places. With, we all have different things that have grabbed onto us. We have different idols that we've given into. And we seem powerless against them. So we need your help, Lord. We need you, Jesus. And in this moment of worshiping you, may the power of those false deities fall away from us. Do your healing work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.